Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite movies. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we are doing our Barbenheimer update. Warning, spoilers ahead. I definitely said the intro wrong. Do you want me to do it again? <laughs> today we're only talking about movies. So that's I fine. know, that's what <laughs> threw me. <laughs> I'm just so excited for my popcorn movies popcorn. Popcorn movies popcorn. Um, hi, Remy. How are you? <laughs> hey, Kat. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I watched so many movies last Sunday, and we were supposed to record right after. And I was mm-hmm. like, I cannot. I cannot. There's so much going on in my head that I just cannot talk about these movies eloquently in any way after sitting in the movie theater for like eight hours so yeah no that's (laughs) so much processing to do up front that's impossible and you have so much else going on in life oh gosh yes you're uh t minus 21 days until the big move yeah i'm so excited um so yes there's a big move coming up um i've been packing so We've got a bit of a different recording set up today, so if the audio is strange, um, please bear with us until we have a more permanent <laughs> recording set up. Um, hopefully it turns out okay, but if it sounds weird, that's why. But yeah, my house is in boxes. My kitties are extremely confused by the many, many boxes that they can now sit on. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been packing, like, more fragile stuff, so, like, my kitchen plates and things like that, so I've been wrapping them in packing paper, and at first, it was all, like, laid out on my coffee table, and Ember just happens to, like, to sit on the coffee table, my cat Ember, and so he was, like, laying on the packing paper, and I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'll move that for you. And I took it down to the kitchen to start packing. And he followed me to the kitchen and then insisted on every time I finished with the packing paper, he would go lay on it. And I'd have to move him to pack my next plate. It was so cute. He loves it. He loves it. (laughs) So I guess we're going to have to keep some packing paper around. I don't know what his deal is, but he gets very excited about it. I bet it's like cool. And I bet he likes the sound of the crinkliness. So... I don't know. It might be what that. is packing paper exactly? It's um, it's kind of the texture of newspaper, but yeah, I was, I newspaper was has like, a lot I of like. I normally just ink. use like real newspaper. Yeah, yeah, but then you get like ink all over your hands, and I don't have a ton of access to newspaper right now because they don't get delivered in the summer. Who does? Yeah. Well, I would just go steal a bunch of ones from school because they, like, deliver a bunch of daily Iowans to school. And so I would, like, steal those. But then in the summer, they don't deliver those. So I'm Mm. SOL. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so he's been really cute about it. Uh, It was very funny. But, yeah, things are really starting to get all packed up. I... I am starting to plan like return trips home to see my family already. I think we're going to take a 19 hour Amtrak uh, to come home for Christmas, which I'm really, really excited about. Yeah. Because it'll be cheaper than flying, which sometimes taking the train isn't cheaper than flying, but in this case it is. And Scott and I have always wanted to do like a long train trip. So this will be a good way to just kind of test that out in a lower pressure 
situation and I hate flying into O'Hare, which is where I would fly into mm-hmm. for Christmas, that made me want to die. I was like, it's I guess worst. I live in this airport now because I cannot find where the Uber pickup is and like I just can't leave. It's I'm not gonna be able to leave this airport. <laughs> I've never not had a horrible time at O'Hare. It's, it's my least <laughs> favorite hub of all time. I avoid it. <laughs> At all costs. I'll go well out of my way not to connect in O'Hare. Because things always go They'll change your gate and you have to like run like to another terminal. You have to like. Oh, I've done. It's just shameless, shameless sprinting in O'Hare. I have to. I have to. Oh, yeah. You need like a three hour layover at least if you're going to fly through O'Hare. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you do like properly pad your. Mm -hmm connection then you'll get delayed six hours so yeah you know it's either one or the other (laughs) either you will live there either way so yeah either you'll get stranded there and need to rebook your flight or you just live there until your flight actually shows up Mm -hmm. um but yeah i'm really excited about taking the train and like getting in a lot of reading time and sleeping time stuff like that that's awesome. I was just looking at train tickets for Thanksgiving as well. Now that I like oh. know in advance when mm-hmm. my holiday uh, a novel time concept. will be, Whoa. I know I can just like order my tickets now. That's it's amazing. So strange. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm looking at tickets to go to. It's so cheap to get to um, Washington D.C. And mm-hmm. so we have a friend that's moving or just has moved to that area. And um, I was like, oh, I want to go down and see the cherry blossoms. So Mm -hmm. we're going to go to D.C. in March at some point and probably meet up with our friend that just moved there. So I'm really excited about that. And it's like a $15 train one-way ticket to get all the way to D.C., which is like a four-hour train ride. It's yeah, the train. It's amazing. The train rules, dude. It's amazing. I'm so excited because then I don't have to do any city driving. I hate city no, driving. It makes no. me. So yeah, I'm just. I'm really excited to be able to hop on the train and explore the East Coast. Absolutely. But anyways, I'm really excited anyways. to be an East Coast girly. I know. I can't wait for you to be over here. <laughs> yeah. So soon. So soon. Yeah. Every time I leave the movie theater now and I mm-hmm. walk past all the restaurants. I'm like, can't wait to go there with Kat. Can't Yay. wait to go there with Kat. <laughs> yes. Excited to explore, visit all of the spots in Central Park that I haven't been to. Yeah. I'll show you every spot where I've ever sent you a photo from. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. We could do like a side by side. Yeah. And I'll show you every spot where families of raccoons live. <laughs> oh, amazing amazing i anticipate that there will be some overlap (laughs) yeah perhaps (laughs) but yeah so i had an eventful week i went and saw so the same week i saw barbie and oppenheimer which would have been last weekend i also went and saw talk to me which i mentioned to you that i was excited about Mm -hmm. and so i just want to like talk about it because I don't think I'll have time to really cover it in a kind of formal episode, but it was really good. So I don't remember what I rated it on Letterboxd. It wasn't very high because I rated it immediately after watching it. Uh And as you know, sometimes with horror, I 
have kind of like a percolation period where Mm -hmm. I'm like processing for multiple days. So I think my initial viewing, I only rated it like three stars, which is a very low rating for me. I don't really rate anything. Mm -hmm. That's like the equivalent of a one star for me. And so I, uh, the movie ended and I was with my friend that I always make go see like horror films with me. And she looked at me and she was like, that was incredible. I loved that film. It's one of the best horror films I've seen. And I was like, I don't know if I liked it. I think that was a little too scary. I was like really worked up that whole film. And Uh I found it like not enjoyable to watch. And then I had this experience where I just could not stop thinking about that movie. It was exactly Mm -hmm. like when I watched Midsommar. And I was like, I hate that film. Terrible film. You're so fucking crazy. I wanted to immediately watch it again. Like, the next weekend, I watched Midsommar again, and I was like, this is actually a really great film. Yeah, Um, dude. And I think I'm having that experience with Talk to Me, because the more I think about it, and the the different thoughts I have about it, the more I like it. Um, So... If you haven't heard of Talk to Me, it's a film by um, uh, an Australian director duo. Um, I think they're brothers and their last name is Philippou, I want to say. Yeah. I might be saying that wrong. Um, but it came out this year and it's about a group of teenagers, they're high schoolers, that are playing with a haunted object. It's a like haunted artifact <laughs> that... When you hold this, um, it's like an embalmed medium's hand and it allows you to speak to spirits. And so they say, talk to me. And then, um, they'll see a spirit and then they'll say, I let you in. And then the spirits allowed to possess them for a specific amount of time. Um, and the main rule of the film is that they only have 90 seconds um, to be possessed before the spirit will want to stay. And um, obviously, that can go haywire if you don't stop in 90 seconds. And so um, I thought that was like a really interesting concept. Um, and I thought it was really original because there's kind of an addictive aspect to this like possession, like it feels really good. So they want to do it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And it becomes like kind of a social media sensation where like everyone's taking videos on their phones and posting it to social media apps. And so it's kind of like spreading and people want to like seek out these parties where it's happening. So I just thought that was like a really creative concept. And I think that they really carried that out very well. And like I said, I thought it was too scary when I was watching it. Um, there mm-hmm. were, it was very graphic. So if you're sensitive to things I like have heard that. blood yeah. and um, the sounds were very like graphic mm, as well. That's a Foley work. <laughs> yeah. Um, the mixing was great. I thought that the sound effects were like very sharp and crisp in a way that horror movies tend to not have. I find that like the sound effects were very effective. There's a scene where the main character like slaps herself in the face and Mm -hmm. it made me jump because just the, the sound of the slap was so loud and I was so worked up that it was Mm -hmm. almost like a jump scare. Um, And 
I, I mean, like, there were points at this film where I was so scared I felt nauseous. And yeah. uh, the best, like, equivalent for that feeling I've ever had was, like, this the car scene in Hereditary. Um, mm-hmm. So if you know, you know. Um, yeah. And if you're sensitive to that scene, it might not be for you. But it was intense. And the makeup was fantastic. Like, the prosthetics that they were using on people just fucking wild amazing mm-hmm, amazing mm-hmm. work these australians are not fucking around if you can see it in a theater i thought it was really cool if you liked i mean it's really really scary but if you like that kind of thing it could be for you and definitely let it percolate but now my rating i don't remember what i rated it but i would rate it a 4.5 and i want to see it again when it comes to streaming so wow yeah very highly rate that film <laughs> I want to talk about how someone vomited and oh my screaming. <laughs> it was not it was not because they were scared. Like I, really I said I was nauseous. I really want to make it about the movie. <laughs> it, I I mean I wish it was about the movie. It would be way less annoying. But yeah. these these children I it was children? It wasn't children, but I don't think they were old enough to be seeing this film. I don't know how they got into the theater. They seemed like high oh, schoolers. Weird. They were, like, giggling and watching TikToks on their phone the whole time. Fuck off. No. So fucking rude. So rude. And they were, like, giggling the whole movie. I was like, I'm gonna lose my shit. Dude, like, I would lose it. And then they must have... So I, I like, hear this, like, retching sound. And it's, like, in the same row, but, like, across the aisle. Like, you know how they've got the stairs sure, that go sure. up? It's, like, on the other side of the stairs for me. And I hear like a retching sound. And I was like, oh no, someone just puked. And then no one got up. They fucking stayed through the rest of the film. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way I would remain in a film. And they must have just like, sorry, trigger warning for puke. But like, (laughs) they must have puked into like a cup or some kind of receptacle because there was, there wasn't a mess. When, like, we got up, it was fine. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. But they left, like, McDonald's shake cups and shit in there. Like, how rude. People have no movie manners anymore. I know. It's a terrible experience. And I went to, like, the normal theater, not, like, the nice theater. I was wondering which theater this was. Yeah. Yeah. People have really good movie manners at film scene. But... Um. I mean, and also part of that's because the tickets are a little more expensive and like the crowd you're getting, it's like catering to a slightly different crowd. Yes. But still, no matter what theater you're in, if you're on your phone, you should be immediately And like they were injected. watching TikToks with like volume. It was like I videos I- with volume. Oh, I was livid. There should be one of those like bank teller buttons that you can buzz (laughs) a staff member and be like, someone's watching TikToks in here. Can you get them the fuck out? That would be so good, actually. But children children would press um, it for sure. Well, I was thinking at this over while I was imagining our future owning that coastal coastal theater in Maine. Uh (laughs) While I was also imagining the programming I would be doing, I was like, I'm going to put in those teller buttons how can yes. I make it so that they're used thoughtfully and efficaciously? And I didn't come up with a thorough plan, but I'll keep working on it because yeah, people's or maybe behaviors. it's like you 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 have a point system, 
And people who come to a certain number of movies a month, they're the designated tattletale for the theater. Oh, yeah, you give it to one person. You would give it to, like, people who are reliable, and then you could give them, like, rankings. There's got to be a way that... Yeah. I don't know. People will ruin any system, so... But yeah, if if they're seeing, like, two movies a month reliably, then they get a button that they get to bring with them to the movies so that they can be the movie police. Yeah, I also almost yelled at two people for talking in my movie the other weekend. Oh, no. It wasn't nearly as bad as children watching TikToks and puking, uh, but it was, <laughs> like, two older women behind me. And it was at, it was at Film at Lincoln Center. Which is okay. not normally your run-of-the-mill crowd. Yeah. Like, those are cinema people. Yeah. But there were two older women right behind me. Uh-huh. And halfway through the movie, I was watching Passages, the new Ira Sachs mm-hmm. film. Halfway through the movie, they somehow felt so comfortable in the theater that they were openly reacting to everything the main <laughs> character was doing. And narrating their thoughts and feelings about oh, it. Oh, no. <laughs> but they were, like, litigating the effects that his decisions would be having on other people. And it's like, obviously, that's what everyone else is oh, doing no. here. But, but do we're it doing head. it in silence, friends. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you don't have to speak. Go to you dinner afterwards. To like, I know. What? Go hang out and get drinks and talk about it then. I was so annoyed. There's going to be a no tolerance rule at our cinema for sure. Yeah, blacklisted. <laughs> you need an ID. You need to be 21 and up <laughs> to come to our theater. 21 and, and up. We if you to... misbehave, I put your mugshot on the wall. <laughs> yes. <gasps> yes. We could have like um like a a little holdy uppy thing. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't know what the name is for that. A holdy uppy thing. You have to hold up your name and your cinema sin that you committed. <laughs> yes. Oh, we can so have like, everyone. Have knows. you seen those things at like animal shelters where it's like cat of the week? Yeah. Or naughty cat of the week. And mm-hmm. we could have like I bit wonderful. six people this week. Yeah. It's gonna be just like that. <laughs> I bit six people. I thought you were talking about a movie goer and I no. was like, no. <laughs> I was talking about a cat. Yeah, we could do that. I really want to do this, though. Like, if anyone rich listens to this podcast, can you please give us a million dollars? It's a worthy investment, and we promise we won't go bankrupt. Yes, definitely. We saw a Zillow post for a cinema in coastal Maine that is up for sale, and we really want to buy it. I've already planned all the special midnight programming we're going to be doing. Which I'll talk about later. I I really feel like we should do this. Like, if you're rich and you don't have anything better to be doing with your money, like giving it to charities and saving lives, um, you could give it to us and we could do cool things at a movie theater and you can have free tickets. If you're Stephen King. If you're Stephen King and you you want to bring two women to Maine to program movies, we'll show your... Well, if you, yes. we won't show your movies if you don't want us to. We'll show whatever you want if you buy us this theater. Yeah. At Stephen King. Think about it. Think about it. This is our pitch. This is our pitch. <laughs> An to impromptu you. Pl- pitch. Yeah. 
listen to our episode where I raved about your book on writing and mm-hmm. then think about it. <laughs> oh, boy. But yeah, Talk to Me was really good. Um, oh, right. That's what we yeah. were talking about. So I specifically wanted to see these films in a very specific order. I wanted to see Talk to Me, which I did. And then I wanted to see Oppenheimer because I wanted to be scared and then upset. And then I wanted to laugh. So I watched Barbie last. Right. And um, yeah, so we can get into Oppenheimer if you want. Yeah, let's launch into Oppenheimer. So since our Barbenheimer primer episode, I successfully saw Oppenheimer a second time. And just as a little update, I, upon my first viewing, I rated it four and a half stars because I had one very specific hang up about it that Mm. was really holding me back from fully embracing it. Mm -hmm. And then I let about two weeks go by and I processed that hang up and I went in with a new attitude the second Uh time around and it was a a full five star experience the the second time. So I'm very pleased with that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, uh, I just want to give like a official disclaimer that this is our spoiler episode. Oh, yeah. So we are going mm-hmm. to be spoiling these films. So if you would like a spoiler free version of this discussion, Remy talked us through this in our initial episode, the Barbenheimer primer. Um, and that was two episodes ago. So it would have been 56. So go back to episode 56 and listen to Remy talk about those uh, if you haven't seen these films yet. Um, But otherwise, we're going to be spoiling these films from here on out. Very spoilery. You've been warned. So I watched Oppenheimer last weekend. It was the third weekend post-opening and still surprisingly full for the theater. Um, So that was great. I got to sit up in the balcony. I talked um, my friends, well, one of my friends into going to see that with me. So that was really fun. And then everyone else joined us for Barbie. So that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and Oppenheimer tells the, it generally tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the um, lead scientist in charge of creating the atom bomb for World War II. Um, history is not my strong suit, so I will not be (laughs) describing more in depth, but I thought I was not going to like that film. I really did. I thought, I thought I was going to appreciate certain aspects of it, but I thought there was no way in hell that I would walk out of that film being like, this is a five-star film. Because of it being a biopic about a scientist and stuff, or why? Because it's a biopic about history and about war and about um, politics. And so just those three things, I tend to not like those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But my whole, the whole movie, I was just thinking like, wow, this is amazing. I'm really enjoying this. And um, I expected it to be a lot more... Um, like emotionally intense for me. And I also don't like those types of movies because they tend to be just like, I don't know, kind of stressful, more stressful. And I didn't really find this film stressful. Like it was about intense things, but the, 
I thought it was paced perfectly. I found that like I wasn't becoming like overwhelmed at any point and I was just really able to like sit back and enjoy it. So I was really impressed. Um, and I guess it doesn't come as that much of a surprise because I did really enjoy Dunkirk. And mm-hmm. so Christopher Nolan has a now after two films, he has a track record of creating movies about history that I really like. So <laughs> that was really cool. It's kind of like you mentioned in our last episode, describing a parallel plot line of mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, like going through this process of creating the bomb and then being um, discredited later on due to his previous associations with the communist party and things like that. And it's also telling the story of I'm blanking on Robert Downey Jr. Straws. Um, Straws. Yes. Um, Who is trying, he's like being um, accepted into the president's cabinet, like down the line and that was amazing. Um, you love the RDJ part. I did. I did. Why? So I started the film and I was like, that guy looks really familiar. Because <laughs> I didn't know. I never look at the IMDb beforehand. I just like that's go in fair. blind. I fly blind. I was no, like, I, wonder, I like that. I like knew that Robert Downey Jr. was going to be in the film. But mm-hmm. when I first saw Straws, I was like, that guy looks super familiar. <laughs> um, completely unrecognizable to me for really? 40, 40% of the film, probably. And then it like dawned on me about midway through the film. And I was like, that's Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> um, and I just thought he did such a good job. I found Amazing. him so compelling. I yeah. found that the writing of that character just like, and his motivations so compelling. I, I mean, he ran away with that film. He's so good. I, I can't give enough praise to the performance done by Robert Downey Jr. in that in that film. Um, He's really good. He's back. Oh my god, that's like the best Robert Downey Jr. performance I think I've ever seen. Me too. Absolutely. I think. He has to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He must. It was amazing, incredible, amazing. I I feel so many things. <laughs> I felt, and his character was like pivotal for my emotional moments. And I think that's really? why. Yes, I think because okay, I have lots of thoughts, but I think that I found his character so just emotionally engaging. I think that the way I, I guess it's like the way it's edited or like the way the storytelling is happening where Mm -hmm. you're getting certain amounts of information at different times. There is one specific moment in the film where, and it's also got um, Rami Malek in, in that scene. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the most satisfying moment. And I think that that's like what really made his whole character stick in my mind is like, you see Oppenheimer kind of be set up for this like major downfall by who you later find out is Strauss. Yeah. The larger context is that there's two main story streams to the film. Mm -hmm. The central one where we're watching J. Robert Oppenheimer develop the atomic program for the United States and carry out the Trinity test. 
That's mm-hmm. the central timeline. And then there's another timeline about five-ish years later, and that's the Straws-dominated timeline that mm-hmm. appears in black and white. And that timeline is when we're f- completely switching POV from Oppenheimer to Straws as the central POV character in that black and white timeline as he's waiting to be... Um, God, what is the word for when you're accepted onto the Confirmed? cabinet? Confirmed, yeah. Yeah. Confirmed. He's waiting to be confirmed to join Eisenhower's cabinet. Mm-hmm. And this is the pinnacle of his political career. He's a politician. Mm-hmm. And he has had interactions with Oppenheimer in the past, recruiting him to be on different boards that I can't remember offhand. There's a lot of organizations that you have to pay attention to in the film. And there's a third timeline that we also see later on down the line that is Oppenheimer defending himself, appealing the his security clearance being revoked, mm-hmm. essentially, which is a proxy for taking away all of his influence in the scientific and science communication corner mm-hmm. of the world. And the really interesting part about the Straws timeline is that when we're watching his confirmation hearings, we think he is a friend to Oppenheimer at first, but then there's a turn and we find out all along it was Straws who was the one that got Oppenheimer's security clearance revoked. And now there was a fallout from that and we're seeing how that fallout is impacting his confirmation Yes, for the cabinet. Yes. Thank you. I never could have explained that so well. So yes, knowing all of that, there's this moment right at that turn where we're watching that third plot line playing out where we're seeing the very end of Oppenheimer's like security clearance being revoked. And Mm -hmm. he says this line, he says, is anybody ever going to tell the truth about this? And then it does like a cut and you see Rami Malek get I don't know. He's like going to talk. He's like, it's not a court, but he's like on the stand and he's giving testimony to testify. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's like a gut punch where you're just feeling so bad for Oppenheimer. You just feel like so terrible for like just this battle that he's clearly losing. And it's like a setup and it's not a fair trial. It's not a trial. But, um, and then there's like this very satisfying moment where you're like, oh, someone is going to tell the truth. And you get to like watch that play out and you get to watch like the devastation of straws and see like everything slipping from his grasp. And I just, that moment was a perfect moment for me and will stick with me for a very long time as like some of the best performances, I think. So, um, yeah, Rami Malek, he was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I also think his particular speech at the end is one of the keys to unlocking Mm -hmm. some of the deeper meanings of this film. Yeah. And I also thought that was a really high point of the movie as well. So good. Um, yeah, the performances in this film are really incredible. Like you said last week, or two weeks ago, it's like an absolutely star-studded cast. 
because you've mm-hmm. got Robert Downey Jr., you've got Rami Malek, you've got um, Emily Blunt, who was absolutely stellar. Um, mm-hmm. She, I love her like <laughs> rage and anger. I've never seen her do a part like that. And I just really enjoyed her. Florence Pugh was amazing. I mm-hmm. wish we could have had more of her as always, but like it was a smaller part, but so good. And then we had Killian Murphy, who was just amazing. And um, I've seen him in so many things. And never before have I experienced sexual attraction to that man. <laughs> but suddenly, when he plays a tortured scientist, I'm like, yes, this time, this man is incredible. I'm so here this. So I was like, I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I think... Oppenheimer has the belt right now. Whoa. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> a shocker. It shocked me. Absolutely I was like, am I attracted to Oppenheimer? What's happening right now? Whoa. Um, we had such different experiences <laughs> at this film. Yeah. Very good. I also really liked the um, guy who plays his colleague at the college where he's teaching. Um, I don't know who plays that guy. I don't Josh remember that guy's name. Maybe? He plays the that actual, the physical physicist, the practical yes. physicist. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah. call that? Man, uh, I cannot think of words physics. today. Applied physics? Yeah. Um, yeah. He was really cool. I like Benny Safdie. Everyone yes. fucking knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Um, yeah. The tension was really good. I loved, like... There's a, a, a specific moment that I keep thinking about with Kitty and Benny Safdie's character where mm-hmm. he tries to shake her hand and she refuses to shake his hand. And I'm like, this is a great moment. Like, and he knows exactly why. And yeah, I think yeah. that that's fantastic. Um, but I, I just love the nuanced performances that we're getting from people because they don't have to use any words to really get their emotions across in certain scenes. And I really liked that. I liked the aids for straws. Me too. They were fun. And they were, were, that one guy was real cool. I was like, Oh, you're a good guy. I like you. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I really liked it. It was long, but it didn't feel like a three hour movie to me. I, was like fully engaged the whole time. I didn't reach that plateau that I usually reach in mm-hmm. Nolan's films where I'm like, well, I've used all of my like emotional energy to get to this point And now I just don't feel anything. I usually reach that point in a Nolan film where I'm like three quarters of the way through. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm ready for this to be done. <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, it Maybe doesn't, not to but you, I believe you. But- <laughs> But I do like I I if a movie is longer than like two and a half hours, I usually reach a point where I'm like, mm, I'm kind of over it. Interesting. <laughs> um, which is why I was kind of nervous about this film. Sure. But it didn't feel like that. I also went to go see this film with subtitles. It was a subtitled showing. Sure. Um, and that really helped me follow like all of the different names and. Yeah, there's a like, lot of names. It was it was very, very helpful for me. Because I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this. But it was very helpful for me. Those are my kind of like disjointed 
thoughts about this film, but I thought it was really good and I was really excited about it and I would definitely go see it again. I think if I had watched it a second time before doing this update, I would have more solid thoughts on it but yeah these are kind of just like gut responses to the film and right it's a lot to process uh, on the first pass absolutely and that's why i definitely wanted to see it a second time before talking about it in depth and i'm really glad i did uh it sounds like we had very different experiences which is not surprising (laughs) since you and i always have opposite interpretations of things frequently even when we both enjoy it it's for always for different reasons it seems and so yeah there's a lot of things you said that are interesting to me especially like having sympathy for Oppenheimer yeah in the third act I have no sympathy for yeah (laughs) but yeah I don't know that's sort of part of my original hang-up when I went to see it the first time I was, I had a a kind of a lot of expectations and Mm -hmm. biases entering the film because I was conceptualizing it as a biopic about a person who did one of the worst things Mm -hmm. in the history of humanity. Yeah. And that gave me a certain expectation that there would be some amount of reckoning with Mm. his actions and while there is some processing of it, and certainly the final note of the film, mm-hmm. the final scene, definitely lends itself to regret mm-hmm. and coming to terms with the horrible nature of what happened with the atomic program mm-hmm. and everything thereafter. To me, when you're entering the film with the mindset that I'm going to watch the origins of one of the worst things that's ever happened. Mm -hmm. And at the end, the final note is, oh no, was this maybe bad? (laughs) It feels unsatisfying. Do you know what I mean? I do. (laughs) I do. I know what you mean. I, I did like the way that they handled it though, personally. Right. And I fully acknowledge that's like my own bias and Mm -hmm. that is what's bringing those expectations is what soured it for me on the first run. So, when I entered the second viewing, I knew full well what the scope of mm-hmm. that commentary would be and to not expect an actual reckoning. Mm-hmm. And so then when I could set that aside and be like, well, they're not really going to get into that. They're going to focus on this period of time when he's just beginning to realize what he's unleashed on mm-hmm. all humans. Yeah. Then I could more adequately set my expectations and reckon with what is actually in the film. And when you limit the scope to what is portrayed, it does a great job. Mm -hmm. And I love the way it's handled. And I think the ingenuity and nuanced nature of how it's handled is really well done. Mm -hmm. And while I didn't really feel that sympathetic about any of the security clearance stuff or anything like that, I definitely really enjoyed the ending part mm-hmm. where he returns to talk to Albert Einstein again yeah, and has that final sentiment. So it's I've thought about it a ton. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's one of the things I enjoy most about 
Christopher Nolan's films at large is that there are there's such depth to them that there's many ways to read them and there's many details you can go back and notice and yeah. dialogue you can reinterpret and different types of symbology that you can think about for a while and take away different things. And so I know there was a lot more information to glean and shape what I think some of the messaging can be. Mm-hmm. And so on a second pass, I was still like really, really pleased with, with what was presented. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to watch it again. I, definitely can see myself coming back to this film and getting a lot more out of it a second go round. Mm -hmm. Um, Another strength of this film, though, it can be enjoyable for somebody who just wants to go see a good film on a Saturday and somebody who like wants to go back and do multiple viewings can get more and more out of it each time, if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah. There were some people in my first showing Mm-hmm. as we were leaving the theater that were really angry <laughs> and I found it extremely puzzling and it made me really worried about media oh. literacy at large interesting and mm. one person was mad about how long it was and how many details there were mm. and they were like this should have been a book this should not have been a movie it was and a I was book, like well though. first of all it was a fucking book <laughs> And they just thought it was, like, not remarkable enough to be put on screen because it was all dialogue for the most part. And that means it shouldn't be a movie. And I couldn't disagree more. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe they were just expecting to get to see a bunch of cool CGI explosions or something. But that's not what that film is. No, certainly not. And and the other person who I was even more perplexed by... (laughs) Uh, we have to like talk about the ending of the film for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, man, I'm not going to get to any of my notes. This is already running so long, oh, no. but Sorry. there's a lot of, no, it's fine. There's a lot of really great motifs that Christopher Nolan returns to in this film. One of them is definitely the difference between theory and practice. And another one is compartmentalization And there's one really big, to me, obvious metaphor that he pulls through, which is the atmospheric ignition question, which is something that gets brought up early on in the film, where the scientists are debating whether detonating this device will light the entire atmosphere on fire because of a chain reaction that never stops. Mm -hmm. And... If that happens, the entire atmosphere of the Earth will ignite and destroy the world. And they eventually figure out that that's probably not going to happen, though there's no certainty with theory alone. And, you know, they take bets on it later and talk about whether or not this chain reaction is going to happen. And at the very end of the film, Oppenheimer is coming to terms with the fact that he unleashed something on the Mm -hmm. world that was the start of a a horrible chain reaction that has led to political unrest Mm -hmm. (laughs) ever since and led to the entire Cold War and the nuclear age and all of the anxiety that comes with that, not to mention, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying. And 
at the end of the film, he's talking with Albert Einstein because that was one of the people he consulted about atmospheric ignition to try to figure out if that was a legitimate thing to be worried about before they did the Trinity test. And he's talking to Einstein and he's like, do you remember when we talked about atmosphere ignition ignition and Albert Einstein is like, yeah, a chain reaction that would ruin the, the, that would destroy the world. And basically Oppenheimer's like, yeah, I'm worried that it, that hat, that mm-hmm. I did that. And it's like, uh, the metaphor is very yeah. clear. And then the credits roll. And then the guy behind me says, I don't get it. <laughs> that uh, didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> and then he turned to his friend. He's like, I don't get it. <laughs> Did the friend get it? I think so. <laughs> but I, I was just like so startled that he couldn't understand that final the conversation. Yeah. The metaphor. Yeah. And I was like, he like, thought literally, that he thought literally that they were talking about that Oppenheimer was upset that atmospheric ignition <laughs> did happen. And yeah, he's like, I don't get just... it. That didn't happen. Why is he so upset? Oh, no. <laughs> Oppenheimer. Ending explained. Yeah. The oh title of this. Oh. Uh, I, so disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a great film. I really I enjoyed it. that film. Um, yeah. To me, it's a cautionary tale about what happens when you put men in charge who have no ability to foresee or consider the results of their actions. Because that's Oppenheimer's key flaw, is that he's a great theorist, but he has no fucking idea how to foresee the consequences of his actions, whether it's it's starting affairs with his colleagues' wives. It's seeing a married woman and getting her pregnant and having to end that marriage. And then Mm -hmm. you get her pregnant, even then, though neither of you want kids, and then you're saddled with these children that you just Mm -hmm. dump on your friend because you don't want them, because you didn't have the foresight to understand that kids would be hard work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, he's an unlikable person. They did a great job of just like making him a non-sympathetic character in the first act. And then I think it's, I don't know, I think it's interesting that I'm able to feel sympathy for this character, you know? No, It's just a strange... I think you're meant to. Yeah. For sure, I think you're meant to. And But I think Matt Damon's character, Groves, puts it really Mm -hmm. well. Sometime in the first act, he says a line that is something basically akin to, genius is no guarantee of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the core tenets of this film is that yeah. you can be a genius, but if you can't think outside of your own experience and think about the consequences of your actions, then you're going to do something fucking terrible. And yeah. that's a, another, it sort of dovetails with another one of Oppenheimer's flaws in that he never thinks outside of his own experience. Mm-hmm. He has no concept of other people's feelings it seems like he doesn't listen to people he doesn't listen to Jean tatlock when she's like stop bringing me flowers like don't treat me this way he he just keeps doing it mm-hmm. when he builds los alamos and he builds a house for him and his wife he doesn't put a kitchen in the house because he never eats and so if it's not part of his experience it's mm-hmm. not part of the plan and so it just it's just a portrait of someone who's so self-centered mm-hmm. and unable to 
think outside of their experience and think about the consequences of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that makes it something of a cautionary tale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But granted, while he has those drawbacks in character, his motivation, at least at the start, seems good. You know, he wants yeah. scientific progress. He wants to help the United States develop yeah. this program specifically to combat the Nazis. Yeah. And, and to yeah, prevent that device from being created first because that puts everyone at a disadvantage, every one of the allies at a disadvantage. If right. one of not our allies are the Nazis are developing the same device and could use it on us. And so what happens down the line is a terrible thing. But also it makes you think about how if it wasn't Oppenheimer, they would have just put someone else in charge. And that's who we would be talking about right now. Cause Probably right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like not an issue. For me, it's not an issue about Oppenheimer. It's an issue about like, the inevitability of once this discovery was made, it that discovery set off the chain reaction. You know, yeah, the discovery do, that we could split the atom. Exactly, they show that in the yeah. film. Everyone reading the, the news mm-hmm. and running to the lab and being like, "They split the atom, and now we've got and, to build a bomb." Yeah, like, and Oppenheimer they, like, immediately says, "Yeah." It out. The student like asks him, "What are you thinking about?" And he's like, "I'm thinking the same thing as every other scientist yeah. that has seen this." And so, yeah, I think that definitely lends its to your argument that someone else would have done it. And that's one of the major reasons why the U.S. program felt like it wasn't just an obligation. It was, it had to be done. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah. But I think like them, it felt dishonest initially, though, when they were putting together the program, right? Because it was kind of marketed as like this is a security policy we wouldn't necessarily use this ever but we should have it right in our pocket and then we used it and that's where the sin is right like that's that's the big bad thing that happens and yeah i don't know i i appreciated how the complicated nuance of the situation was displayed in the film yeah, they certainly gave a ton of runtime to setting up why people felt like this was something that had to be done, mm-hmm. at least from a U.S. perspective. Yeah. And it serves its purpose. It does a great job of making the first two acts really engaging. You know, mm-hmm. you want him to build the team. You want him to get all the good scientists to work together and complete the project and meet their goals. And you can get so swept up in that motivation that you can sympathize with them for Mm -hmm. also getting swept up and not thinking about what is going to happen next. Even though some of the scientists do have that meeting before they do the test where they're, they're meeting, they're like, what is going to be the outcome of this, of this device we're building? So clearly some people were thinking about it more than others. Yeah. And there was the petition like, and there was the petition that like he slapped the- out of Rami Malek's hand like an absolute yeah. dick. But I think, I just think he wasn't equipped for that. He wasn't equipped for that type of projecting into the future. And yeah, that's true. I think, 
I think this is meant to be a central understanding of his character because we're set up, we have a prime example of it within the first 10 minutes of the film beginning when we have that scene with the poison apple, which a lot of people have pointed to as some sort of like biblical symbology, which could certainly be true. But to me, I think it's much more straightforward in that we see him get mad at his teacher and he embarrasses him in class. And so he poisons an apple and puts it on the teacher's desk and then goes to a lecture and goes home and falls asleep and then wakes up and realizes what he did and what could happen now, a day later, that he's already carried it out. And so he runs to the thing and like prevents the guy from eating it and dying. But it's a prime example of him acting without thinking about the consequence, no matter how dire the consequence, he just acts. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when he talks about that incident later, someone asks him like, oh, did you hate that guy? And he's like, no, I liked him a lot. Mm -hmm. And it just underscores the fact that he didn't think he just did it. Yeah. And so to me, that's what the Apple thing sets up. He has no foresight, but his motivations are normally fine. And one thing that I thought about for a long, long time, this entire time, basically, since I watched it, I thought the fact that there's three basic timelines, the the Trinity test and the lead up to it, the appeal for the security clearance, quote unquote, trial. Mm -hmm. and the straws timeline Mm -hmm. and the first two made total sense the first two made sense because they're vehicles of insight into oppenheimer's life like Mm -hmm. we're seeing his big achievement and then we're seeing his entire life deconstructed he has to account for his entire life in Mm -hmm. that appeal and that's a, a perfect vehicle for a biopic but why the straws timeline why this this politician that no one talks about anymore, who had little to no interaction with Oppenheimer, why does he get an entire third of the movie? I was like, I mean, obviously, we find out he was later involved in that, uh, in the security hearing, where his clearance was revoked. But we could have watched that entire hearing and not known about straws at all. You know what I mean? He wasn't necessary to understanding the security clearance being revoked. And yet he has an entire third of the film. And while I think his third is great, I think it all works together wonderfully. It's cross-cut and synthesized to perfection. It just really bothered me that I didn't have like a straightforward answer of why straws. Mm-hmm. And... There could be, I'm sure Chris Nolan has a specific reason, but one reason that I think you could justify focusing on Straws in particular, because you could tell Oppenheimer's story so easily without him, is that he's a foil to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is this guy, he's got good motivations, he thinks he's doing the right thing, he thinks he's doing the patriotic thing Mm -hmm. and the right thing for science, but he has no foresight about anything that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And then you have Straws, who is the complete opposite. He has excellent foresight. He's a great politician because he's constantly thinking 10 steps ahead. He's 10 steps ahead of everyone he's in the room with Mm -hmm. at all times. Foresight is his strength. 
but his motivations are so small and so petty mm-hmm. that and they are his complete and self-centered. They're both the so Einstein self-centered. Thing. Yeah. yeah. The whole so, Einstein thing. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was about something more important. Line. That, that guy line. is so good. <laughs> That's Alden Ehrenreich. He did crush it. Oh, I loved him in this. Fucking incredible. Yeah. But do you get what I'm saying? Like, you have two self-centered guys. Yes. That represent science and politics. The scientist has huge, vast, grand motivations for mm-hmm. good things, but no foresight. The politician has all the foresight you could ever want. He's playing 4D chess all day long, <laughs> but his motivations are so small yeah. and so petty and so insignificant that they're complete opposites, and there's, it's like a perfect conflict. Mm-hmm. And Rami Malek's testimony at the hearing, I think is a perfect demonstration of that because Rami Malek gets treated like shit by mm-hmm. Oppenheimer multiple times throughout this film. He's a huge dick to him. And that is, that's like equal motivation for what RDJ has like a problem with Oppenheimer for. Like he was slighted by him publicly once and now has this vendetta against him. Mm-hmm. And Rami Malik was slighted in the same way by Oppenheimer. And yet when he's giving his testimony, he tells the truth mm-hmm. completely objectively. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference is that he's a scientist. And so it, he can set those petty grievances aside and he can just tell the truth and i think that's like part of christopher nolan's high regard for scientists is why rami malik is the opposite of of straws in that situation and straws and oppenheimer are foils for each other do you see what i'm saying i love that theory yeah because i totally see what you're saying about it not necessarily making sense um it's in like not s- obvious why you would give so much time to straws uh, on the face of it, unless I'm missing something. So my ins- instinct for why straws is because if you're trying to set Oppenheimer up to be a sympathetic character, there needs to be an enemy that's not just Oppenheimer's choices. and dis- It needs to be less nebulous, right? Yeah, but it could have been Jason Clark, the prosecutor. Like, he could have been a great enemy, but, you know? But it's so much more satisfying for it to be. Like, I don't know. But is because it satisfying I- because we can identify Straws's petty motivations possibly yes but we don't get to see karmic justice for the prosecutor we don't get to see oppenheimer win in that scenario right yeah but we do get to see oppenheimer win when someone tells the truth yes like that's exactly why it's set up that way and because we get to see the enemy be vanquished in a sense like we get to see one last success even though it doesn't directly benefit Oppenheimer we do get to see someone tell the truth and we do get to see like justice for this character that we've set up as a sympathetic character and I think that that's why straws in my mind that makes total sense from a story structure Yeah. yeah I think that the foil makes him a perfect enemy a perfect like not enemy but just like opponent opponent yes thank you but 
I think in terms of the story structure, that's the only way that you get the emotions that Christopher Nolan was trying to Mm -hmm. wrench out of us as a person who was very emotionally engaged in that specific plot line. Mm -hmm. Did you have any other performances you wanted to talk about? Or any Um, other moments, like, whatsoever? There's just so many moments. I have one more character that I actually wanted to talk about. Yes, please. Because in my second watch... David Krumholtz's character really stood out to me. He played Izzy Isidore, the guy that gives him oranges from a napkin. Every scene that David Krumholtz was in, I found incredibly emotional. I loved his character. I loved the way he conveyed his point of view to Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer, especially when they disagreed. Mm -hmm. And I found his performance and his dialogue and his delivery extremely emotionally impactful and he did an amazing job yeah and so i would say in in the first watch he kind of gets buried a bit because there's so many yeah people with great stuff going on but in the second watch the emotion of his character and the uh everything he's conveying really came through and i really enjoyed it i wish i could remember what he says to Oppenheimer when Oppenheimer's like, yeah, and you're going to come work here and you're going to live yeah, here. And you're that gonna be scene on this in particular project. was my and favorite. And he says something. I can't remember because I've only seen it once, but he says like, I'm not going to do that. And Oppenheimer right. says like, but we need you. And I can't remember that. That scene sticks out to me very emotionally, but I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what was said. And I wish I had a better representation of that. But I remember that being like, when I knew that that character was, like, really, really good. Yeah, same. That's my favorite moment of his. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what they said verbatim, his but the eyes, sentiment and yeah. the emotional valence is is what really stuck with me. I can't wait to see that again. Because he's he has deep sympathy for Oppenheimer. He's yeah. a true friend to him, but he also deeply disagrees with what he's doing and yeah. per- refuses to participate. And he also tells him to take off that fucking uniform, which I <laughs> <Yeah>. love. <laughs> what a good friend. Yeah, he was like, you're not you're not a military guy, you're a scientist. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah, because he doesn't too. want Oppenheimer to, like, get changed by this environment in that way. And I think that that's really good and insightful for his friend. Right. Hmm. And I... Also, now that we're doing the spoiler version, I gotta talk about how exciting it was when Casey Affleck showed up. And he is only in one scene. He's uh-huh. Pash. He is the guy that, like, hunts down communists that is interrogating Oppenheimer oh, about the Chevalier yeah. incident. Uh-huh. And you don't see his face at first. You see the back of his head yeah. and you hear his voice. And... Will was instantly able to identify him from voice alone. (laughs) And I was sitting there, I was like, I know that voice. I know him. Who is that? Mm -hmm. I know him. And as soon as they showed his face, I was like, I can't believe Casey Affleck is here. Among all these amazing people, now Casey's here too. Mm -hmm. It was thrilling. His character was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I loved that sequence. That was so intense. I I felt so stressed. It was great. I loved it. And... Yeah, so that's part of the Chevalier incident where he's trying to get Oppenheimer to give up that his friend, who was an intermediary, trying to get information out of the um, 
the Trinity Project or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And we know, because we've already seen it, it was his friend Chevalier, the guy that's, like, raising his kid for him. But my interpretation of that a second time around was different from the first time. And mm-hmm. I want to see if I missed, if it was weird that I missed this one thing in the first round, or if it's easy to miss. Mm-hmm. So I have a specific question for you. Okay. How do you think Jean Tatlock, how would you describe her death? Hmm. How'd she die? Because the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, no, she drowned herself in a bathtub. That's very sad. Yeah. She was really upset. She was having a tough time. She wrote the note and yeah, drowned that's herself. That's awful. Okay. Yeah. The second time I watched it, there's like a second where you see her like leaned over the bathtub. Her head is in the bathtub and she is not moving anymore. And then you see a gloved hand withdraw from the back of her head. Oh. And then it cuts. Whoa. And over top of that, you have a voiceover that is describing the like coroner's report in that something about how she didn't sign the note that she left, so we don't know who wrote it. And there's also a, like a barbiturate or something in her system that would make it difficult to fight back. Like that's not mm. said, but the subtext is that there's a suspicious drug in her system. Interesting. And then there's the gloved hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I didn't see the watching. hand the first time. Yeah, I wasn't watching close enough. Um, and so then I realized that that sequence comes after Pash, mm-hmm. Casey Affleck, becomes suspicious that Oppenheimer yeah. has a friend yeah. that is trying to leak secrets to the Communist Party. That's interesting. And then that happens. And we everyone knows it in his file is his connection to Gene Tatlock. Yeah. And then later on, it's revealed that it was actually Chevalier. And so I think we're meant to surmise that Casey Affleck murdered Gene Tatlock. Wow. Yikes. Which is crazy and uh, even more yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'll have to watch for that. Watch it, it again It was very subtle. Time. I just have one final thing I want to say about Oppenheimer, and then we can do like a, a lightning round for Barbie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> if that's, that's fine. okay. Yeah, I think that Barbie is not nearly as dense to dissect either so exactly um now that we can do spoilers i just wanted to talk a little bit in more detail about the sound design since that was my absolute favorite feature of this film if i had to choose one thing Mm -hmm. the sound design really makes it for me even from the opening image which is that quote about prometheus bringing fire yeah to humans, I don't remember how it goes exactly, but it's mm-hmm. about Prometheus. And there's flame imagery and all of that while you're, the text is coming up on screen. Mm-hmm. And underneath that, you have that sound that comes back later that is people stomping their feet on the bleachers. Yeah. And it's that rhythmic stomping. Uh-huh. And with no context whatsoever... To me, it sounds like a train that's getting, that's like gaining momentum to pull out of a station. Like, you know how the wheels turn around and it's like a rhythmic sound. Mm -hmm. At first, it sounds like you're getting on a train that is picking up speed and you're not going to get off this train. And so you have to buckle up and get ready and then you're launched into the film. Uh And I think it is amazing sound design (laughs) to put that at the very opening. And then when it is returned to later 
mm-hmm. during Oppenheimer's big victory speech in the gymnasium. Mm-hmm. I love everything about the sound editing in that because it is claustrophobic and panic-inducing, mm-hmm. or at least that stomping sound in particular, on top of everything else in the sound mix, mm-hmm. makes my heart beat so fast. It is almost panic-inducing. And I think it is so excellently designed to have you experience the same type of panic that Oppenheimer is experiencing as Mm -hmm. he's realizing the horrible consequences of what he's contributed to, as he's seeing like the visuals of that play out in front of him and the screams and the stomping and all of that. I think is phenomenal. That was one of my favorite parts of the film because it was so, I I don't even know how to describe it. It was just visceral. And same thing for when he's in the security hearing and they do the lighting effect where Jason Clark is really laying into him Mm -hmm. and he's basically shutting down because he can't defend himself. And it is so intense Mm-hmm. And then the lights absolutely max out. That's incredible. I loved that. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the imagery reminded me of... Sorry, my cats are going crazy in the background. If you can hear them, I'm sure you can. Um, It reminds me of imagery from Sunshine. Um, oh. Like, it was like they saw Killian Murphy in that, and they were like... <laughs> Yeah, this is Oppenheimer Big B. And then, like, just with, like, the overexposure in that yeah. moment, too. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, like, the the bomb visuals and things like that reminded me of Sunshine. But the overexposure also reminded me of Sunshine. Right. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah. Very yeah. inspired. I like that. Right. Uh, but aside from that, the use of that stomping mm-hmm. motif... My favorite sound design decision was during the Trinity test when Mm. they detonate. It's just quiet. And it's fucking silent. And you can hear people's clothes rustling as they move around to turn and look. And you can hear people breathing. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it is a startling silence for an extended period. And it makes it such a breathless experience as you're taking things in but mm-hmm. also bracing for mm-hmm. the sound wave and that was such a good decision i yeah fucking loved it and i just i love all the thought that went into this film and i can't wait to watch it many more times and think mm-hmm. about it a lot more and process all of this even more because even just two times is not enough <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I'd forgotten that you'd brought that up before and I was paying attention to it when um, I was watching it because you mentioned how the sound design is really helping you understand what's going on in Oppenheimer's head at critical moments too. Mm -hmm. Like it's helping to convey like an emotional state and I really wasn't sure what you meant by that, but um, when I was in the film, I was like, that makes total sense. It was just really, really well done. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. What a film. What a film. So good. Where Where would you rank it in your Nolan rankings, if you had to? Um, hmm. 
This, closely followed by Dunkirk, then Tenet, and then everything else. Mm-hmm. So this I, is your new number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would say that it's like this and Dunkirk are very, very close together for me because I really, really like Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. And then like way down <laughs> is Tenet. And then everything and else. And then everything else. Because I'm I'm just not a Chris Nolan stan. Like, That's fine, I totally yeah. understand why people like him. It's just not usually for me. But these specific films are definitely my vibe, which is shocking because they're not my kind of movie. But right, right. they're done so well and in a way that I just really, really enjoy. So Yeah, I think yeah. Dunkirk is still my favorite. Yeah. But this, upon more viewings, Oppenheimer could make a run. Yeah. At the number one spot, we'll have to see. But Dunkirk is just so strong to me that I don't know. They're both. Yeah. My experience the second time around with Oppenheimer was so euphoric and just yeah. alive with the power of cinema that <laughs> I could definitely well, see that momentum carrying forward. I just, I felt so strongly in Oppenheimer and it could be recency bias too, but I looked over at the friend I was seeing it with and we were like in the same posture for like the last like third of the movie where we were just like hugging ourselves. <laughs> we like looked at each other and we were like, oh, that's weird. Because we were so like upset and stressed and we were like self-soothing. It was very Whoa. strange. Yeah. Um, but like, I think also I find war very, very intense and like personal <laughs> depictions of death or an and understatement. very very intense. War. It's intense. <laughs> um, listen, um, and I think that that's why I have a hard time with movies about war because, like, usually you're gonna see people get get died, uh, get deaded, and I I don't enjoy that, and I don't like the threat of that. Um, but. It's like, it feels too personal in Dunkirk for me. And I think that that takes it down a notch for me. Whereas, like, I really like the themes of, like, the impersonal consequences of an action like that. Because you're so far removed from the action itself. And it just, I find it very interesting. And I find that theme a recurrent one in like the science fiction that I like and Um, these decisions that are too big for us and humans mm -hmm. are so small and we shouldn't be allowed to have the capabilities that we do if we can't be responsible and peaceful and I I find that like something that's really interesting to me in fiction and in nonfiction. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why that makes Oppenheimer a great allegory for AI. And it's a really timely Mm -hmm. film for considering, you know, opening all those cans of worms that probably shouldn't be opened. Mm -hmm. So, So. I watched Oppenheimer. It was intense. Uh, And then... The same day, <laughs> I thought it was a great idea to just. I have no idea why you would theater. do this. Listen, um, because I knew if I did it by my tickets right away, then I would lose the momentum to go. 
Mm-hmm. And I would be a disappointment on the podcast. So um, I just, I needed to buy my tickets and mm-hmm. I just bought them back to back because I was like, if I just get myself to the theater once, I'll stay and I won't like not see Barbie or not see Oppenheimer just because I didn't feel like going a second time. I've bought a ticket for another movie another day and I've skipped because I'm like, I can't get myself to the theater again. I don't know what it is about me. I'm unreliable in that way. So I was like, I just need to get myself to the theater once and I'm just going to knock it out. Mm -hmm. So I bought my tickets and then I like sitting in the balcony area, like I've told you, because then I can have my little notebook and I can like not be bothering people. All of my friends bought tickets for the row in front of the balcony, which is like literally a different section. So I like looked over the balcony railing and waved down at them before Barbie. (laughs) And uh, so that was funny. I It was like a sold out show too. So everyone in the balcony was like, hi, I'm a stranger. And I was like, hi, we're going to be friends now. So that was fun. The theater had a... um, special cocktail for Barbie and they had one for Oppenheimer, but I saw Oppenheimer mm-hmm. at 11 in the morning. So I was not <laughs> going to get the Manhattan project. I know. Uh, I was cocktail. like, I saw that was what they chose. I was like, good on yeah. them. I'm yeah. so glad. But I did get the Malibu Barbie for um, my 3 PM showing of Barbie. So nice. I still got a nice cocktail. It was delicious. It was so fun. So that was great. It was sold out, which is shocking because like they even had a sign. I saw a sign sitting behind the ticket counter um, that they would put out because the Barbie showings were getting too full. And so they yeah. would just like put the sign out so that people would stop walking up and trying to buy tickets for Barbie. Yeah. All four of my showings. So all both Barbie, both Oppenheimer, all completely sold out. Barbie four times. No, sorry. I, I mean, like, like that's a shocker. My four collective Barbenheimer <laughs> in this economy. In this economy, <laughs> no, that would be a little, a little bit much. But it would be like fifty dollars yeah. of Barbie tickets, okay. if not more. Um, yeah. So it was sold out three. Three weekends in. I was shocked. And it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday matinee. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. shocked. But it was such a fun experience. I've never seen a movie theater that packed, except for when we went to go see Parasite. But that was opening weekend. And, um, yeah, I was thrilled. It was so fun. Again, I've only seen this film once. So I am mostly going to give, like, my gut reactions to it. Barbie's very straightforward. I really enjoyed it. I only am giving it four stars for now because I think that it's just because I was kind of movied out by the time I actually watched Barbie. (laughs) So it didn't have the same like emotional impact on me that I think it had for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it so much. I really liked Ryan Gosling. Of course, he's like the fucking star of the show. How does he He do it? cackling how does he do it i loved it the school library like when he goes to the school library that's incredible and that woman asks him the time yes um i love when he says i can't even beach here (laughs) because he can't find a job that he can do and it's so cute and then i love his stupid coat it's so good it's Um, so good it's so good i i I love it. And I was exactly right in my 
a thought that like, I, I was kind of worried that the trailer would have picked out certain pieces of the film that were like, especially funny Ken moments or something like that. And I was like, well, I kind of had this impression that Ken was going to be this like caricature. And I really wanted that. I wanted that performance from Ryan Gosling all the way through. And I was kind of worried that maybe the trailer had misled me. It did not. He's a caricature and I loved it. I loved every second. He committed to the bit and he just did such a good job. Like at the beginning when he gets rejected by Barbie, like you're so sad for him and you're like, poor Mm -hmm. baby, he just wants to hang out. And when he's like, but every night's girl's night. <laughs> it's like, poor guy. Um, he just wants to hang out with his girlfriend and feel included. And I, so I, I liked him beginning, middle, and end. I thought he did such a good job. I really, the film was not necessarily what I expected because from the trailer, I thought it was going to be mostly them in the real world, interacting with the real world. Mm-hmm. But it, I feel like, most of the film was set in Barbie land. Yeah. I also had basically no idea what to expect based Mm -hmm. on the promotional materials. And I'm Mm -hmm. really glad that I had almost no expectations going in because I was really pleasantly surprised with everything. (laughs) And I was especially pleasantly surprised with the way they used Ken, specifically Ryan Gosling's Ken, because he could have so easily been a really small part that was mm-hmm. just there for a few jokes and yeah. that was his entire purpose, but he had such a larger and central and critical purpose to the film yes. that I was extremely impressed. Not only is he extremely sympathetic in the first act, like you get to see an example of how harmful it is to grow up in a society where you're told you exist as an accessory to the primary gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And then to watch his turn as a villain that came, I had, I didn't know he would be in this so much to, to find out that he turns into the primary villain is amazing. But he's still sympathetic as the villain too. Of course he's still sympathetic, but still, Honey, you're making bad choices. Let's fix this. But I just love that he was both. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with you. He's I, treated like a real character. And it's funny because there's so much commentary right now in the media. I get like these news articles that are popping up, these headlines that are popping up where it's like, so-and-so says Barbie is a man-hating and terrible. And like, it's all about feminism that feminists that hate men and i was like you fucking missed the point did you watch the same film as me because it's not about that it's about how like to me my interpretation is that i think that really what this film is about is how we can all learn to grow and be better than what we have taught been taught as children and then what we learn as adults we are always changing and we have these fucked up ideologies that are ingrained in us throughout our entire lives. And then we can learn and change and grow from that. And it's a coming of age story about adults. And yeah. 
the adult mind still coming of age. And I think that that's wonderful. And I'm here for it. And also, it's satire. Calm down. Yeah. No, it's the fact that that's even a narrative is asinine. It's not even worth discussing because it's patently incorrect and it's not yeah. worth your energy. No, and it's I just know. Conservative <laughs> it just news makes me media really angry. Fodder. Yeah, no, but I understand. I really like the end scene between Barbie and Ken, where Ken is going through this growth, and Barbie gives him grace and forgiveness and the opportunity to be better without judgment. And he messed up, but there are no, there's no like, I'm angry at you, you're a terrible person point. And there's also acknowledgement of her role in that situation as well. And I really liked that. I liked that it modeled a really great like communication about a difficult topic. And I like that there was modeling of setting boundaries because Barbie's like, well, I'm not, I don't want you to kiss me and I don't want you to like be my boyfriend necessarily, but like you're still you aside from me. And like, I like that entire scene. I like that entire conversation. And there's so much grace in that conversation. And that didn't have to be the way it was handled. And I was really, really glad that the filmmakers made that choice in the script. And I was just really pleased with that. Yeah. This film is about Mm self-actualization more than anything. It's not about hating anyone. But yeah, it's about overcoming societal pressure and societal flaws at large to overcome that and self-actualize to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was not a film completely centered on women Mm -hmm. and the fact that it was about self-actualizing for the dolls, for the human humans, for men and women and everyone and children Mm -hmm. and adults... I was just so impressed by the scope mm-hmm. of who could take things away from this or like the scope of who it incorporated into that larger narrative of improvement and self-actualization and getting past societal harm. And that's what really blew me away. The first mm-hmm. time I saw it, I was like, I had no idea it was going to be this expansive in its philosophy. And I absolutely loved that. Yeah. Um, and also, like, while we're talking about Ryan Gosling, we have to talk about the I'm Just Ken, that massive set piece in the third act where, uh-huh. where there's that, his big musical number and the battle on the beach yeah. and everything happening. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. Even as a person who doesn't typically like musical numbers in movies, that was amazing. That was movie, that's filmmaking. <laughs> It was amazing. It was so yeah, good. I I found that really enjoyable. It was very good. The whole movie was enjoyable. It was a great it was watch. So enjoyable. Um, I don't understand how two grown adults dressed crazy like that got that far into a school where they were allowed to interact with the children <laughs> at the school. I yeah. feel like the teacher should have... Um, they had very porous security. Yeah, they should have been like, okay, this seems weird. Um, the body language is giving, uh, people that shouldn't be on a a school campus. But, um, I really liked 
the mom. She was amazing. America Ferreira. Yes. She was so good. She was very relatable. I liked her big speech about what it feels like to be a woman. I think that was the highlight. Yeah. That was the high point. I have two high points. No, I have three high points of <laughs> Barbie. The first high point is the masculinity montage in Century uh-huh. City when yes. Brian Gosling Amazing. is experiencing the masculine world yeah, for the he's first learning time. About patriarchy. He's learning about patriarchy through montage. Uh, a lot of it involves Sylvester Stallone. And uh, my very favorite segment of that is when he's watching businessmen speak to each other and learning about their mannerisms and <laughs> a woman comes up to a group of businessmen talking and they like immediately dismiss her and yeah. sh- and like push her to the side push her to the side and he like mimics <laughs> that gesture that is the best comedic element of the movie i've ever seen is when he immediately yeah. incorporates that dismissive gesture <laughs> During that montage, that's incredible. I love that. The next high point is the I'm Just Ken huge set piece. And then the other high point is America Ferreira's speech about what it feels like to be a woman. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's so good. I love... I loved my realization that she was the one playing with the Barbies because that made me really sad for her. Yeah, and really sad. It just made me so sad to, like, view the memories again from the mom's point of view. They were really sad. And just getting, so like, sad. totally dissed by the kid. Yeah. It makes me so sad. But they worked through it, you know. No, I know that they totally worked through it. But I don't think that that's how... I don't think most people get Barbie to come and, like... True. ...conflict mediate between their teenage daughter. True. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? If Margot Robbie could come help with conflict mediation. Certainly. um, Yeah. And then, obviously, the... I've already forgotten her name. Do you remember the name of the girl from... Ariana Greenblatt? Ariana Greenblatt. Yes, that is her name. She did an amazing job as well. She, like, played her part very well, and she was great. And I I found their their plotline very satisfying. Um, I wish I had just had a little bit more emotional investment in my tank to give to that movie, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. But well, I find it is incredibly rewatchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's such an easy watch. It's yeah. so it's so engaging, but mm-hmm. not taxing. But there are like really high emotional points, but also yeah. it's very breezy otherwise. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, yeah, I I find it very rewatchable. Also, I came into it expecting it to be a bit more mature than I was. uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how I think a child could enjoy the film. I don't think that they would get it. Right. But obviously, but I think that it would be enjoyable for a child to watch. Like, sure. But at the same time, enjoyable for an adult. Because I think that that's a really hard balance to strike. And... I think it's largely for adults, though. Yes, like, it's it not is. for kids. No, but it it's could not for be shown. kids. Yeah. yeah, but you could see like a a younger ish child still getting enjoyment out of that. Like, sure. I don't think it. I expected it to be like a bit more. I don't know what I expected, but it was very good. I really enjoyed it. Um, 
Alan was amazing. Alan. I, really I was dying Alan. to talk about Alan. I was like, I hope she brings up Alan soon because I need to talk more Alan. about Alan. Um, I mean, I don't have a ton to say about Alan. But I, every second he was on screen, I was amazing. loving it. Yeah. Very loving good. It. Yeah. It was a good film. I really enjoyed it. It was a fun watch. Um, trying to think of like any other big... Oh my god, no. I remember my favorite moment. Tell me, tell me. The film is when the radio station changes and it says, and now we're going to play Ken's favorite song. And then it's the Matchbox 20 song push. I cackled. I've never laughed so loud in a movie theater in my life. It took me totally by surprise. And I have... I. I was thrilled because I love Matchbox 20. It's like one of my favorite (laughs) bands. And so I was like, yes, this is incredible. And Um, then it comes up like so many times when they're like at the beach and they're all playing it for the women that they're with. Yeah. There were so many exquisite takedowns in the third act when they returned to Barbie land to try to reclaim, um, to try to reclaim power. Mm -hmm. The, the sequence where they find the method for inoculating the Barbies mm-hmm. against patriarchy <laughs> by one by one, like swapping them out and mm-hmm. distracting the Ken and then filling in the Barbie and getting her inoculated. The methods by which they distract the Ken, the Kens <laughs> in that sequence are so exquisite that I that was also another high point. The one yeah. where she asks about how to use Photoshop. And then in one, yes. she asks about CDs. Cat, <laughs> if I could tell you how many times I have wanted to kill myself in a conversation <laughs> about CDs and just general financial planning, I want to shoot myself in the fucking head. Every time that's brought up. <laughs> so that was a great one. And then the part where she asks for him to tell her about the Godfather. It's yes. just all oh of it. Oh my God. All of it effective. was so, so good. effective. It was damning. Yes. It was so good. And just the entire, just all of that. Mm-hmm. They, all of the poking fun at pillars of masculinity was mm-hmm. hilarious. And I just loved it. Yeah, I just really wish that there'd been like a sequence where there was like a, oh, what are you guys playing? And like, they're playing like Call of Duty or something. And she's like, will mm-hmm. you show me how to do it? Because <laughs> that's yeah. like, such a pinnacle for me. That, of, like, that could have gone game guys. I loved it. For an entire half an hour. Movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would have been thoroughly entertained the whole time. I want to know what ones they cut from that. Like, they it could have gone on for for so long. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was so good. Kate McKinnon was amazing as weird she Barbie. She was really good. <laughs> she was was built for that role. She crushed yeah. it. Yeah. Uh and I really loved Barbie's final scene with Ruth in that weird oh, yeah. e- ephemeral space. That <laughs> yeah. was great. I loved that too. Yeah. Very touching. I I I liked it. I wasn't really sure what to expect knowing that Mattel was like a um and they gave the green light they were like endorsing well they this also film. got a, a production credit like they yes. were yeah. yeah they were involved and mm-hmm. so i wasn't sure what to expect in terms of like 
what the commentary on Mattel would be. But I liked that they like poked fun at themselves a little bit. I was Certainly. really pleased with that. It was it was progress. It was good. Because I liked that they were like, oh, this is the Barbie that they made that was pregnant and then discontinued. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about her. And this yeah. is Alan. And there was only one of him made. And he right. was Ken's best and, friend and they could wear all the same clothes. Yeah. And they had that whole discussion in the boardroom about how, like, we're a, a woman first company, but yeah. there's no women on yeah. the board. And he can think of, like, two women that ever had mm-hmm. C-suite positions and stuff like that. Yeah. And then that guy, I can't remember his name offhand, but he's in sex education. Mm. He was really good. He's the guy that works at Mattel that yeah, wears that the comes- sweater vest. Oh, yeah. That, like, comes in and tells them about the Barbie, right? Yes, exactly. He's awesome. Um, I can't... Connor Swindles. Yeah. Okay. He's great. I loved his role, too. Mm-hmm. And I love that part when they're in the boardroom and they're trying to argue that there's women that work at Mattel, and, <laughs> but they can only think of two. And he he pipes up and he's like, I'm a man with no power. Does that make me a woman? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I really like that one. Holy shit. That got a lot Incredible. of laughs in my A lot of laughs. <laughs> He did a great job. I loved him. Um, and it had a lot of good stuff and a lot of good commentary. And I will say one criticism that I can understand being levied at the film is that the the feminist commentary is kind of to the extent that you would cover in maybe like the first two lectures of a gender studies 101 uh-huh. course. It's not super in-depth or super nuanced it's Mm -hmm. introductory but that is still two more lectures worth than basically every other movie has so i think it's a it's a start and it's better than nothing and i don't think that should be a reason to hold you back from seeing the movie but i I understand that criticism yeah but i think if it was the other way then other people would have the opposite criticism. So, Uh, you know, like if there was more and it was like too in depth into the commentary, then people would have the opposite. Yeah. It was like a, yeah, I thought it was great. I was very pleased. Um, Me too. I can't wait to watch that again too. I can't wait to watch both of these movies a million more times. And I also think that there's a balance too between, I think if you get too much into feminist commentary, then it starts to become, at least for me, the potential for despair increases. Mm, Um, And you don't, you want it to still be like a fun movie that people enjoy watching, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that I don't want to go to Barbie and start feeling like despair about my position as a woman. Like I want to feel hopeful. And I think it accomplished that like hopeful. Yeah. There was only like, a few times where it felt like a punch in the gut in terms yeah. of being a woman and definitely America Ferrera's speech. But also when she goes, when she sees that billboard of, I think some type of pageant and or cheerleading squad. And she says, Oh, oh the Supreme court. That really, <laughs> that really hurt. That was funny. Yeah. But it also really hurt. I didn't feel any pain after Oppenheimer. So I was numbed. Yeah. I was numbed to any pain. Yeah, I definitely want to watch it again. I absolutely agree with what you said in our last episode, though, that 
uh, a really cool person to see it with would be your really cool mom. Because I think that that's absolutely true. This is a great film to see with your mom. And then you can apologize for being mean to her. (laughs) I know. Yeah. It's very sympathetic for moms. But yeah, definitely something that I'll be keeping in my back pocket for next Mother's Day. Top five moms. I know. That's exactly the thought I had. I was like, oh, here's a mom. That's interesting. Katie Oppenheimer is not going to make that list. Oh, no (laughs) way, man. She is not going to make that list. Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com, and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice, and we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.